You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Welcome to my Tuesday night live stream, the random times when I do live streams. I've done the last few during the day uh, in the morning, and so I thought I would do a night one tonight. And I'm going to be sort of continuing the conversation that I had on the video last week about how to know when it's time to break fellowship uh, with maybe a church. When is the time to get a new church over doctrinal concerns? And I had a great question from a viewer who, who said, you know, as a follow-up to that video, it'd be really helpful to have some conversation about doctrinal discernment. In other words, one of the points I made in the video was to try to discern whether the, the, the doctrinal controversy in play was an essential or a secondary issue. And so the person was asking me like, how do I know what's an essential and what's a secondary issue? And I thought, you know what, that's a really good topic for a conversation. So I wanted to do a, a follow-up uh, discussion about that because we often hear this saying, um, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, charity, or in, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And that's kind of a nice cliche, but my big question always is, is who decides? Who decides what's an essential or what's a secondary thing or a non-essential? And I don't even really like the term non-essential because um, it almost sounds like we're talking about a throwaway thing. Um, but who decides? Um, there's a very famous analogy by C.S. Lewis of the hallway and the rooms. And um, Lewis said that in the essentials, it's like meeting in the hallway. You know, you have all the Catholics and the Lutherans and the Orthodox and the Presbyterians and the Baptists and the Pentecostals, and we all meet each other in the hallway of the essentials. And then we go into our separate rooms when we're talking about the secondary issues. I think that's sort of a helpful analogy, but it's also very limited because, again, how do we differentiate what is an essential and what is a secondary issue? What is a denominational distinctive? And where have we actually truncated our faith because of the current moment that we live in culturally? Uh, many people will say, well, you know, a secondary issue is something when it's not a salvation issue. And they'll use this, this cliche, if you will, of, well, it's not a salvation issue, so it's not important. So we can just have unity about it, or we don't need to have a conversation about it. It's usually a cover story for, I don't want to have an uncomfortable discussion about doctrine. And I have a whole rant on that that I did a couple months ago on the All the Things show. So you can go check that out on the whole, it's not a salvation issue. But I first started thinking about this question of who decides what's an essential about 25 years ago, actually, when I read Rob Bowman's uh, classic book, Orthodoxy and Heresy. And in that book, he is really trying to help us di differentiate what's a primary issue of doctrine and what a secondary issue of doctrine and I love Rob. He's a friend of mine and he's extremely intelligent and very thoughtful and balanced. And I like the approach that he tries to get at in that book, but it really brought to my mind the question of how do we decide? Because our faith is fairly 
complicated and it's a large framework. It's a large interconnected system of thought and, and starting to work our way through that of saying, well, here's, here's what is an essential and here's a secondary issue. I think we often take it for granted what buckets we're going to put those things in. And we don't pause to think about um, when we might actually be influenced by our culture and the time moment that we live in and using that as a, a filter or a set of glasses for deciding what's an essential and what's not. Now, there are a growing number of blogs <laughs> that I've noticed and voices just waiting to tell you what to think and to identify what is an essential and who's a heretic, and they're going to name names. And if you've watched me for any length of time, you know that's really not how I proceed here on, on this channel. And that's probably why I don't have half a million subscribers. Um, I'm not very sensationalistic. I really try to take an approach that's more educational in teaching people how to think through doctrinal issues, letting you in on some of my um, thought process on major questions with the hope that it will teach you in turn how to think through complicated doctrinal issues. So I thought I would make a video kind of explaining what some of those tools are, kind of peeling the curtain back a little bit and telling you the sort of the five main things that I use often as a rubric when I am thinking through a complex doctrinal question. Maybe you'll find these to be helpful for you. Um, maybe they will give you some starting points for how to think through things when they come up. Okay, number one, the number one step is to what I call de-Americanize your faith. And I'm sure de-Americanize is not a word, but um, it should be. <laughs> because we really need to understand how our faith has been influenced by America and being an American Christian and being an American Christian in the 21st century or being an American Christian growing up in the latter half of the 20th century. We are shaped by the culture that we live in and our culture can become our lenses for how we interpret scripture. And we may not even be aware of how Americanized our theology really is. So we need to be deliberate about de-Americanizing our theology. Now, that doesn't mean that we're falling into liberalism or progressivism. Rather, we're trying to step back and get more of a, of a historical, global perspective on our faith. And one really good way of doing that that I found to just sort of ground me is to look at something like the Nicene Creed. And you can go on the internet and look up the Nicene Creed, and I'll scroll slowly through it here so you can kind of get a feel for it. And a creed is just a summary of what Christians have historically believed. And in this creed, it, it goes through things like the Trinity and the doctrine of who Jesus is and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It talks about the church. It talks about Jesus's coming again and judgment and and what that will look like. And so this is a good summary of what Christians have historically believed. It's a good foundation for our faith. Now, we as Protestants have a fairly complicated relationship with creeds. 
Um, you may immediately have a thought of, I don't have creeds. Creeds aren't biblical. It's all man-made tradition. And I want to encourage you to study a little more deeply of scripture because there's actually several creeds in the Bible itself. And the creeds are just summary statements to say that I only believe in the Bible is ultimately not useful because there are so many different interpretations of the Bible. But when we look at the historic Christian creeds, it offers a summary of what Christians have believed throughout history. It helps to provide a, a, a foundation. If we're going to build a house, we want to have a solid foundation. We want to have a starting point. And I think that that's what the historic Christian creeds do. They just offer a helpful summary of what Christians have believed about the Bible. Now, our tendency, again, as Protestants is that we look upon creeds as being in a, in a sort of a suspicious way. And if we don't like something, if we don't agree with something, we just dismiss it. Oh, that's just traditions of men. But we need to understand that we get very foundational doctrines from the Nicene Creed, things like the Trinity and the Incarnation and who Christ is and who the church is. Those aren't things that we can all just um, simply roll out of bed and come up with. Um, these are things that the church has historically believed. So even Protestants view things like the Nicene Creed as being at least somewhat authoritative in that insofar as they are an accurate reflection of scripture. I mean, this is the problem with cults or offshoots of Christianity when the Jehovah's Witnesses come along and they want to redefine the Trinity. We say, no, no, that goes outside of the bounds of what Christians have historically believed on this matter. And invariably, I'll hear Christian apologists make appeals to the Nicene Creed. Uh, the same with the Incarnation. So we need to have an appreciation for the creeds. It provides a foundation for us. When we look at things like the canon of Scripture, what books are in Scripture, there's no part of the Bible where the right books are listed. Um, we get that from history or from tradition. So even pr as Protestants, what I, my point here is, is that it helps us um, provide a solid foundation of our faith to know what Christians have historically believed. And this is, I think, a critical step in de-Americanizing our faith. Number two is kind of related to this first point, but it's its own separate point. And that is to ask the question, what did the early church say? What did the early church fathers say about a matter? And when I'm talking about the early church fathers, I'm talking about um, those early Christians who are writing in the first three to 400 years of the church. Um, this is in theology, what we call the step of historical theology, asking this question, what did the early church think about this matter? Is there a teaching of the early church that was fairly universal on this issue? This should be a step that all of us should make sure that we are doing whenever we engage in proper biblical interpretation. And I would just simply refer you to the classic work that's used in many Protestant seminaries by Grant Osborne, uh, the book, The Hermeneutical Spiral. And this is actually one of the, the um, steps that Dr. Osborne 
says it should be part of a responsible hermeneutical process. When we're interpreting scripture, we should look at the words, we should look at the culture, we should look at the historical background, we should look at the author and the context, but we should also look at how has this passage historically been interpreted by the church, especially I, I taking a cue from Dr. Tom Odin, who is a very fine Methodist theologian, um, that to ask the question, to really focus on the first few hundred years of the church's history. Um, and just to give a couple of examples of how this can help. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my family and I were having our family devotions, and we were looking at John chapter 13, where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples right before he goes to the cross. And one of the family members asked, well, is Jesus instituting a, like a third ordinance here? You know, there's the baptism, there's the Lord's Supper, and we're also supposed to wash each other's feet. Like, what is happening here? Um, another day, we were having our family devotions, and we were reading the, the epistle of 2 John. It's a very short epistle, and right there in the first verse, it says, John's addressing the epistle to the lady. And our immediate question was, well, who is this lady? Is this a real, like, physical lady who was heading up this church that, that John was writing to? Or is this um, a symbolic or a, a metaphor for the church as the bride of Christ? And I thought, you know, these are, these are good questions. How could I resolve this? Because in this case, um, looking at the original language isn't going to help me. Um, Looking at the historical context won't help me. Um, I At best, I'm going to have a couple of options. Then what do I do? Do I just choose one and hope for the best? How do I handle that? Well, when I ask myself the question, well, what have Christians historically believed about these passages? Then I can get an additional insight and I can call on the wisdom of the early church and I find out of, oh, what the foot washing means. And actually that's a historic tradition that some ancient faith churches still practice as part of their Monday Thursday service, where the priests will actually wash the feet of the parishioners following in the example of Jesus. Um, and so asking this question really just helps us stay connected to the church as a whole. And again, it's another way of de-Americanizing our faith. So I asked some friends uh, who are more knowledgeable about historical theology than me for some recommendations of where could people start? What could they find out about what the early church believed? So here's just a few suggestions from my friends. The, this first one is the classic by St. Athanasius of On the Incarnation. Uh, you can buy this right off Amazon, as you can see here. And it's a classic work of why did God have to come in the flesh? And why did the God-man, like what was unique about the God-man that was in his death that helped to secure our salvation? Here's the next one that was recommended is On God and Man by Gregory of Nazanius. Nazanius. I'll have to find out the proper pronunciation of that. But this is a good one uh, to help explain how the church um, understood the Trinity from a very early time. Here's another one, uh, the Catechetical Lectures of Cyril of Jerusalem 
Now, the catechism is what the early Christians would have as a teaching for a convert. So this is a series of lectures explaining to, to new converts some basics about church doctrine. Eusebius's uh, Ecclesiastical History is another classic work. And um, yeah, that's the next one. And uh, you can see this one from Christ to Constantine. Uh, available in the Penguin Classics series. This is just a very classic overview of church history from someone who was part of the early church. And finally, I want to draw your attention to this, uh, the epistle to the Romans by St. Ignatius, a very early father. This is just a sampling to help you start to wade in, if that interests you, on studying the, the theology of the early church. Now, now this may disturb you a little bit because when we're de-Americanizing our faith, we're going to find out that there are, are possibly some beliefs that we have that aren't compatible with what early Christians believed, that we have been conditioned as American Christians to believe a certain way. So you're going to have to be prepared to go to some uncomfortable spaces at times if you're going to de-Americanize your faith, um, you're going to have to wrestle through some things. You might have some questions, but I guarantee you that it will help your faith grow rich and deeper. And that asking those questions is a good thing. Okay. Number three is avoid new teaching. This is, this has been a principle that has served me so well the last two and a half decades if someone says they have a fresh new teaching or they're going to give you new wineskin, um, th that's probably a sign that you might want to start thinking about a new church <laughs> or stop listening to that YouTube preacher. Um, when people use the word new teaching, it often comes at the expense of divorcing themselves from sound doctrine of what the church has historically believed. Now that's not always true, but I find that it's often true and you have to have a very acute doctrinal discernment to know the difference. So uh, as my old theology professor in seminary, Dr. Henry Holloman used to say, there are no new errors. There's just old errors dressed up in spacesuits. So we want to be very cautious when someone comes forward with a new teaching or a new understanding of scripture, this is often the foundation that starts to condition people that can go down a very errant trail and sometimes leads into cults. So when you hear that idea and phraseology, it might be wise to unhook. We want the historic Christian faith. We want Christians, what Christians have have always believe. We don't want to just be blown off by every wind of doctrine that comes along. Okay, number four, we want to be wary of churches who are trying to always restore things. They're always trying to go back to the book of Acts. This is the church that is now understood scripture perfectly, and we're going to engage in a restoration movement of going back to the book of Acts. This is, by and large, 
this this mindset is responsible for many many offshoots in Protestantism. If you go through them one by one, the Puritans broke away from the Anglicans, but they because they were trying to go back to the Book of Acts. The Pentecostals often they broke away from the Baptists because they were trying to go back to the Book of Acts. There are there are many movements within Protestantism that has caused a lot of fracturing um, that are really some form of a restoration movement. Now, if you talk to somebody who belongs in a more ancient faith tradition like Anglicanism or Lutheranism, even to some degree, Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, they're likely to say something like, why do you need to restore the church from the book of Acts? We never left it. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's a point that you can you can talk to them and you could debate that point a bit. But just understand from their point of view, they don't understand why there are so many kinds of Protestants. They're like, hey, you know, let's try to figure out what Christians have have historically believed. And again, I think that it'll do you well to study what the early church believed and if you just focus on the first three to 400 years in church history, um, you will get a very good picture of what the church universally believed. And um, yes, there are some regional differences, but by and large, there's a fairly strong universal set of core beliefs and core doctrines that were advocated by the early Christians. My final point in this live stream is Number five is to avoid churches who talk about grace, but don't actually practice it. When you have a church that loves to talk about the doctrines of grace, but you experience the culture of the church as highly legalistic and not very grace oriented, that should be a red flag. You know, I am all for doctrinal faithfulness. I am making a video about how to be doctrinally discerning, but we don't want to be doctrinally discerning at the expense of treating people abusively or disrespectfully. Um, we want to find that balance between, between both how do I maintain sound doctrine and how do I walk in love? We need grace and truth. We need wisdom and the, the, of the wisdom of the ages on how to live out our faith and also what to believe. So we want to be careful of those churches that do seem highly legalistic. They want to talk about the grace of Jesus, but they don't know how to live and walk and practice the grace of Jesus, especially when we see that in the leadership. So those are my five tools uh, that I have used on a regular basis for the last 25 years. And I've never made a, a, a video before of trying to, again, kind of pull the curtain back to show people this, this is sort of the rubric or the matrix that I often run things through. When I come up against a doctrinal question that I don't know about, this, these are the major points that I use to think it through. So those of you who who email me and write to me and you send me videos and you send me articles. What are your thoughts about this? 
I, this is a great exercise and a great opportunity for you to use these tools to try to help build your doctrinal discernment, to help you sow into um, your life of the mind and learning how to love God with your mind by thinking through these issues. I do hope that you find this video helpful and I look forward to your comments and feedback. If you want to comment on the video, you can go on Facebook and do that on um, my Theology Mom page. That's my public page on Facebook. And, and oh, I have a YouTube comment. Oh, my friend Susanna's watching. Right beliefs at the expense of grace, that is not true faith. I couldn't agree with you more, Susanna. We need both. We don't want to have... Uh, grace at the expense of truth, but we don't want to have truth at the expense of grace. This is one thing I have really learned to appreciate in my 40s um, about the importance of balance on both of those things. And so glad to know that that resonated with you. All right. I want to thank you if you're watching this live or if you caught, caught the replay. And I do hope that you find this video helpful. Thank you for watching and God bless.